you cannot deny that you have moral rights and duties. To get us started, I know that you cannot deny that you are linguistically competent. The reason is that only those who are linguistically competent can deny anything. Something else you cannot deny is that you sometimes want things and decide to act in ways that you think will get you what you want. Proof of this is that you're currently attending to this presentation. If you didn't want to do that, you wouldn't be doing it. You would be doing something else, and even if you were temporarily unable to turn it off, you could think about something else. If you continue to attend to it, that will be because you are free to do so and also want to do so. A second example, you might at some point want to drink some orange juice and think that the best way to do that, the best way to attain that goal, is to go to the fridge, open it, take out a carton of OJ, pour some into a glass, and drink from the glass. Because you sometimes do things you want to do, like deciding to attend to this presentation or to drink OJ, I'm going to call you a purposive agent. You're purposive because you have goals you want to attain, and you're an agent because you sometimes decide to act in the hope of attaining your goals. But you're not always a purposive agent. You're not, for example, when you're in a deep sleep. So I'm going to call you not just a purposive agent, but a prospective purposive agent. The reason is that when you're in the deep sleep, you don't stop being a purposive agent. You're just temporarily not acting purposively. So you're a pros prospective purposive agent, and you're sometimes, like now as you attend to this presentation, or when you act on your decision to get some OJ from the fridge, an active purposive agent. Attending to this presentation and drinking some OJ are two of the enormously many goals you might just happen to have from time to time. Because attending to the presentation and drinking the OJ are among the myriad things you might just happen to do or might just happen to want to do, hoping to benefit, I'm going to call the benefits you hope to get from such activities contingent goals. At this point, I'm going to start using the word goods for all the goals you choose to act in order to attain. I do this because you consider any of them that you act in order to attain good enough to make it worth the time and effort required to try to get them, like attending to this presentation or going to the fridge for the OJ. Now, not everything you choose to act in order to get might be good for you in the sense, say, of making you healthier or good for you to do in the sense of being legally or morally good or even permissible. You might opt for another beer or a second bowl of ice cream, even while thinking I'd really be better off without this, or you might cheat on your taxes, even while thinking this is illegal and morally wrong. Still, if you opt for the beer or the ice cream or for cheating on your taxes, you consider the beer or ice cream or saved money to be good enough that it's worth going to the trouble of attempting to get them. If you didn't consider them to be good enough, you wouldn't go to the trouble. So, you've got a bunch of contingent goods, but are all your goods contingent? Or do you have goods that are necessary? Necessary goods would be goods that you have to have, that you must have, in order to be able to act successfully to get any of the goods you just happen to want, that is, any of your various contingent goods. I'm confident that you'll come to agree that you do have necessary goods. I say come to agree because you may well not agree until I've explained why your necessary goods are necessary. I'm confident that you'll have to agree, again after some explanation, that you have two necessary goods. Following Alan Gilroy, who originally presented the argument, a form of which I'm now presenting, I'm going to call them freedom and well-being. To clarify freedom, if, say, you've been handcuffed and locked in the trunk of a car, your ability to act to get what you want will be severely restricted. You might really want some OJ, and you might know of various ways you would, if not trapped in the trunk, be able to get some. Too bad. If you're not free to act on your choices, you're not going to be able to get many of your contingent goods. 
Of course, trapped in the trunk, you presumably have the contingent good of escaping, and you might have various ways of trying to attain that good. So, unless your captor has also knocked you unconscious, you will have some degree of freedom, but you won't have much freedom, so there will be many contingent goods that you just can't get. Now to well-being. What if you were to become a quadriplegic? You'd be unable to move your arms and legs. I hope you'd have lots of help from other people, and if you did, you might well lead a rich and rewarding life. But what if you didn't have any help? That would be horrible. You wouldn't be able to avoid dying of thirst. Why, assuming you didn't die of something else first, would you die of thirst? Because, for us, water is a good that is necessary for our well-being. So is air, and so is food. You must have sufficient amounts of these necessary goods in order to keep going as a prospective propulsive agent who can choose to act in all sorts of ways to get at least some of the things you just happen to want, some of your contingent goods. So, you have to have your necessary goods in order to continue to be what you are, that is, a prospective propulsive agent, which I'll say you generically are, no matter what you more specifically are, although you more specifically are many, many things. More specifically, you might be a transgender female, a college student, a Warriors fan, and so on. But you can't go on being any of these more specific things unless you continue to be a prospective propulsive agent. That's why I call the goods you need in order to continue to be a prospective propulsive agent both necessary and generic. Your necessary and generic goods are, again, freedom and well-being. We could also say... In order to continue to be a prospective propulsive agent, you have to have at least enough freedom and well-being to enable you to continue to be such an agent. A new question whose answer will require some clarification. Is it as a default, I explain as a default shortly, okay for you to maintain your freedom and well-being? You might be inclined simply to say of course it is, but if you did say that, that might be something you just happened to say, something specific and contingent that you said. I'm after bigger game. I'm confident that I can get you to agree that, as a default, it's okay for me to maintain my freedom and well-being, or some sufficiently similar statement is something that you, as a prospective propulsive agent, must say, must say if you respond to the question about how you relate to your freedom and well-being. Let's start simply. Is it, as a default, okay for you to breathe? Most of the time, I assume, you breathe pretty much automatically, but you can also hold your breath at least for a while. Give it a try, and while you do, ask yourself, is it, as a default, okay for me to stop holding my breath? That is, to begin to clarify, as a default, for it to be okay for you to inhale, must you, before you do so, come up with reasons explaining why it's okay for you to inhale? Or instead, would you need to come up with reasons only if you thought, in some specific instance, that it might not be okay for you to inhale? One specific instance in which it might not be okay for you to inhale would be if you were trying to escape from a burning building and needed to avoid inhaling smoke. Another might be if breathable air were scarce and your inhaling would deprive others. But these are clearly unusual situations. I have never been in either. And that they are reveals that you have to agree that except in such situations, or again, as a default, it is okay for you to inhale. A different way of getting to this same point, and an extremely important one that I'll repeat in various ways as I proceed, is by asking whether if someone tried to keep you from breathing when you wanted or needed to, it would be okay for you to resist. If you said no, you would also have to say that, as a default, it was okay for the person who was trying to keep you from breathing to make that attempt and to do so successfully, that the person had the right to do that, and hence that it would be wrong for you to resist. 
But you can't say that because, again, you have to say that as a default, it's okay for you to do things that you can't help doing and that you have to do in order to keep being a pro prospective purposive agent. Should we say that it's never okay for anyone to prevent you from breathing, that is, from inhaling and exhaling? No, because you, as a prospective purposive agent, might decide that you wanted someone to keep you from inhaling and exhaling. You might make this decision if you needed an operation that involved your being put on a respirator and, while on the respirator, not inhaling or exhaling. If that were your free choice made in this case in order to maintain or enhance your well-being, it would be just fine for the relevant medical experts to temporarily halt your inhaling and exhaling. But what if you were to freely decide that you wanted to stop being a prospective purposive agent altogether by preventing yourself from breathing by, say, securing weights to your legs, putting a plastic bag over your head, and plunging into a lake? Even in this extreme case, you would first be acting as a purposive agent and you would, second, be preventing yourself from breathing air, but not from at least trying to breathe. So even if you freely decided to try to stop being a prospective purposive agent, you could attain that goal only by acting purposively. And to be able to do that, you'd have to be sufficiently free and sufficiently well. You can't avoid at least trying to breathe, but you can, at least for much longer, avoid trying to quench your thirst. Should we conclude that because you have this greater degree of control, you don't have the right as a default to try to quench your thirst? No, because again, if you didn't have that right, then it would be okay as a default for somebody else to prevent you from quenching your thirst when you wanted to, and you have to agree that that wouldn't be okay, because if you didn't, you'd also have to agree that you would have no right to resist. A new question, is it merely okay, merely permissible, for you to do what you must do in order to continue to be a prospective purposive agent? Or might it be obligatory? Might it be something that you have to do? Again, I'm confident that you will come to agree that it is something you have to do. To see why, we can first go back to the OJ example. If your highest priority is getting the OJ, and you believe that the best way for you to get it is by going to the fridge, then you must either go to the fridge for the OJ, or at least for now, cease to have that as your highest priority. Because getting the OJ is merely contingent good for you, you have the option of giving it up. It's different, however, with your necessary goods. I take you to have agreed that even if you wanted to cease to be a prospective purposive agent, you could achieve that goal only by continuing to have enough freedom and well-being to enable you to continue to be a prospective purposive agent until you had done what you needed to do to end your life. That's why freedom and well-being are, for you, necessary goods. Because you can't give them up, you have to agree that, as of this point in our argument, you are, as a default, obligated to do what you believe you need to do in order to maintain them. An example, what if, given only what you have agreed on so far, you wanted to continue to live, and you believed that you would freeze to death if you didn't take the coat off my back so that you could wear it yourself? And what if you also believed that your best option for getting the coat was killing me without warning? In this case, it would be not only permissible, it would be obligatory for you to try to kill me. If this disturbs you, don't worry. You'll soon have to agree that it would be morally impermissible for you to kill me in this situation and that you are rationally required to behave morally. But at this point in the argumentation, I've introduced only what we can call prudential rights and duties, that is, rights and duties governed by self-interest. So, given that it must be in your self-interest to continue to be a prospective purposive agent, Again, even if you want to cease to be 
a prospective proposive agent. You can attain that goal only by continuing to be a prospective proposive agent until you have done what you needed to do to attain it. You must, until then, do whatever you believe you must do in order to continue to be a prospective proposive agent. I'm confident that you now ad agree that, as a default, you have the right to do what you need to do to maintain the well-being you must have in order to continue to be a prospective proposive agent. So, what about freedom? That, I hope, is pretty obvious. Your default rights, say, to drink when you're thirsty does you no good if you're entrapped by a captor who won't give you anything to drink. So you have the default right to resist the would-be captor who tries to entrap you and to try to escape if your resistance is ineffective. That's because you have the default right to maintain your freedom. At this point, something else follows. If you have the default right to resist the kidnapper, then the kidnapper can't have the default right to entrap you. If the would-be captor did have that right, then it would be wrong for you to resist. But given that you have to agree that you have the default right to resist, then you have to agree also that the would-be captor doesn't have the default right to entrap you. I hope that you'll now be ready to join me in accepting a generalization based on the examples we've been considering. The generalization is this. You have default rights to the goods that are necessary for you to keep on being a prospective proposive agent, and no one has a default right to deprive you of any of those goods without your consent. Your opting for the respirator is an example of consent. There are various other ways either of these points could be put, but I'll introduce a few only for the second one. You have to accept as true all of the following claims. It is default wrong for anyone to deprive you of any of those goods without your consent. Everyone else as a default ought not to deprive you of any of those goods without your consent. It is not as a default permissible for anyone else to deprive you of any of those goods without your consent. Everyone else has the default duty to avoid depriving you of any of those goods without your consent. And everyone else must respect your default rights to those goods. Note that the formulations provided in the preceding paragraph are, at this point, ones that only you must agree to, although all who attend adequately to this presentation are included within this you. Your would-be kidnapper might well reject all of them, no matter. The crucial point is that no matter what your would-be kidnapper thinks about rights or duties or oughts or anything else, you affirm that you have the default right to resist the kidnapper's attempts, and you therefore also affirm that the kidnapper has no default right to try to kidnap you. Now, a question you may well be ready to answer. Why do you have the default rights? I'm confident you now agree that you have, and why, according to you, must everyone else respect those rights? What's so special about you? The answer to this last question is nothing, in the sense that there is nothing specific about you, nothing that distinguishes you from any other prospective proposive agent, that gives you your default rights or gives everyone else their default duties towards you that you ascribe to them. Why not? Because we haven't considered anything specific about you. I, of course, may well know nothing specific about you except that you can understand English, but that's not important because this essay could easily be translated into any other human language. So, you have to agree that you have these default rights just because you're a linguistically competent prospective proposive agent. But given that, you also have to agree that all other linguistically competent prospective proposive agents, just because they are such agents, have the same default rights that you have agreed that you do, and that you have the same default duties toward each of them that you have agreed that each of them has toward you. The reason is that you accept as the sole and sufficient condition for your having your default rights that you are a linguistically competent prospective proposive agent, 
And that sole and sufficient condition is satisfied by every linguistically competent prospective proposive agent. Having taken this step, you have agreed that there are what we can call objective moral values. They are values because they concern what it is default right or wrong for us to do. They are moral values because they tell us that it is default wrong for us to do various things to other prospective proposive agents, even if we want to do those things, and it is in our power to do them. They are objective moral values because no linguistically competent prospective proposive agent who considers the preceding argument with sufficient care can deny that the values apply to them and to all other linguistically competent prospective proposive agents. Given what you have now agreed to, would it, it would be morally impermissible for you to kill me in order to take your coat off my back, even if you believed that without it you would freeze to death. The reason is that you have now agreed that you are morally obligated to respect my rights, and killing me in this situation could not qualify as respecting my rights. Why is it important that you've come to agree that you have moral rights and duties? Well, although the notion of human rights was not explicitly articulated until the 18th century, talk of human rights has by now become ubiquitous. The explosion of considerations of human rights appears to have begun in the 1930s, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was endorsed by the United Nations. That talk of human rights is currently so widespread appears to have led many, including many of my students, to think that there are solid arguments in favor of human rights that are widely available and widely known. This, however, is not the case. As Jacques Maritain, one of the drafters of the Universal Declaration, put it, those working on the document had a reasonable hope of agreeing on what at least many human rights are, but not on why humans have those rights. This is of immense importance because in the absence of any compelling rational arguments for human rights, those rights are fragile. What human beings at some point just happen to agree about, they could at a later date come to reject. A relevant historical example is slavery. Except it is morally permissible by most human societies throughout history, but currently rejected by the vast majority of human beings. The argument I had just presented is the strongest bulwark I know of against future rejection of human rights.